Welcome to Book Rising, a podcast by the Radical Books Collective. Hello and welcome to our Radical Publishing Futures series. We are hosting conversations on diversity in publishing. We're speaking to experts in the industry to understand structural racism, editorial processes, taste-making, culture-making, equity, and other challenges faced by this industry. Today, we are focusing on the UK, and I have two prolific and inspiring women in the studio, Margaret Busby and Ella Wakatama. I'll say a little bit about them. Margaret Busby is a Ghanaian-born writer, editor, broadcaster. She was Britain's youngest and first Black female book publisher when she co-founded the publishing house Allison and Busby in the 60s. She has edited the Daughters of Africa Anthology, and then the second New Daughters of Africa Anthology. And she was awarded the London Book Fair Lifetime Achievement Award in 2021, as well as the CBE. And she is a member of the Royal Society of Literature. Ella Wakatama was born in Zimbabwe, educated in the US, and has been a London-based writer and editor for many years. She is currently editor-at-large at Canongate Books, and chair of the Kane Prize for African Writing. She has edited several anthologies and contributed to plenty of them as well. She was given an OBE for services to the publishing industry in 2011. And the new African magazine also named her one of the 100 most influential Africans in 2016. Many of the Black and African authors that are familiar to us today have been mentored by Margaret and Ella, and they have both been instrumental in transforming the publishing industry in the UK and globally. I'm so excited to have you both in the studio. Welcome. Thank you, Batsy. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. So I just want to start on a personal note. Do you want to do you want to say a little bit about how you got into publishing? Maybe how you also met. That could also be interesting. Okay, who goes first? You too, Margaret. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I got into publishing in a way before I even graduated from university. Mhm which was in the mid-60s. I, I, I graduated when I was 20, but in my last year, I met at a party, a friend of mine who was having a party for her first novel being published and was also getting engaged or getting married to somebody. So I was invited as a friend of hers. And from her fiancé's friends, I was introduced to this guy whose name was Clive Allison. Huh. And he was at university, a different university, and we were talking about what we were going to do when we graduated, and we both said we thought we'd go into publishing. So we said, why don't we start a publishing company? Hmm. And we met after we graduated, and we did indeed start a publishing company called Allison and Busby. And, uh, well, I suppose I was too young to know what I was doing, really. <laughs> I certainly had no money, no experience, but I had no dependents, no mortgage. So what Clive and I did was to just do what we believed in, what we wanted to do. And I have to say straight away that it, wasn't, it was strictly business. There was no, never any romantic engagement. <laughs> People always assume that, you know, you can't be partners with a man unless you're sleeping with them. I never slept with a man. <laughs> <laughs> just to put the record straight. Sure. 
And so we started out publishing poetry because we were both interested in poetry. In fact, when I was at university, I'd been writing poetry and, and involved with my um, college literary magazine and in fact, editing it and drawing for it as well as writing poems. And so we wanted to publish, it was also the era of the beat poets, and we wanted to publish poetry that was produced cheaply enough for young people like us to be able to afford to buy. So we started with three paperback poetry books. And of course, as I said, we were young and had no income. So we both got jobs with other publishers, with mainstream publishers, whilst we were working in evenings and weekends trying to set up Alison and Busby. So that was the in the, the late 60s. And we've published those first three books in 1967. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, yeah, more than half a century ago, if my maths is right. <laughs> And and then we went on and we left our jobs. We went on publishing um, other sorts of uh, books, fiction, nonfiction, as well as poetry, children's books. And I have to say, I can remember exactly when I met Ella, just to bring Ella back into the picture. It was in <laughs> 2000, Ella, and it was at the publishing party for Penguin. It was a Paul Gilroy book. And I was used to going to publishing parties where I was the only black face present. And suddenly I saw this other <laughs> black woman across the room. And that, of course, we got talking. And that was Ella Wakatama, all three, Ella. <laughs> and uh, we, we kind of carried on from there. We, we kept in touch. We became friends. I, I, in fact, I, I, I wrote a, something for a Penguin book that you were published. It was, I know, it was the introduction to... Bessie Head's A Question of Power, you asked me to write wow. an introduction to. And so we we kept in contact from, you know, for the last you know, two and a half decades, as it were. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, I'm smiling so much because I always feel quite sort of overwhelmed and, and kind of, I don't know, slightly ridiculously giddy when I'm interviewed alongside Margaret because I think the only reason I stayed in publishing was every time I wanted to quit I'd pick up the phone and phone Margaret so I think that, that and she would either persuade me or she'd say oh well that happened to me you'll survive it or mm -hmm. you know yeah this one you're gonna have to fight this is how you fight and um, so I, I got into publishing when I in my 30s actually because I hated every single job I ever had and nothing really made sense to me. I'm a really good administrator. So, you know, I can organize anybody, which meant that I ended up in lots of jobs that required very little of me. I, I think I was basically bored out of my mind for most of my life. And it was my ex-husband and my daughter who pointed out that all my time and money were spent on books. So maybe that could be a job. And um, <laughs> my, my, my best friend's um, brother is the Zimbabwean writer, Peter Godwin who introduced me to his agent, um, who was, no, she was his publisher than Arabella Stein. And, and I, I always remember her because she was the only person who was like really generous and said, okay, I don't have a job for you, but this is how you go about it. And then I just, I tempted for a year. For a year, I tempted Penguin. And every Friday I would go to HR and say, hi, it's me. Do you have a job for me? <laughs> I think they just gave me one so I could leave them alone. <laughs> But you know what Margaret is saying is so important that we met when I was in my first job and Paul Giroy's book Between Camps was the first book I was given to 
to do an edit alongside with my with my boss Simon Winder and um you know it was really important to me because I was I was editing or learning how to edit working on a book but one of the hugest intellects of our time and yeah. um there was no one else that looked like me and then there was a party and there was Margaret and why that's really important I mean we kind of like parrot representation matters but there's nothing like always looking across the room and never seeing yourself never seeing yourself because then you kind of turn that questioning of do I belong inwards mm-hmm. regardless of how strong you are and when you see somebody else like yourself in a senior position you know that not only do you belong but you know you're possible and necessary and I've said this about Margaret before that you know, Margaret is always a reminder to me that that if I feel she is necessary, then I am too. Yeah. Sure. Well, I have to say as well that the way I really got engaged with, with the British book trade was because when I was at school, I used to read all sorts of literary magazines, including one called Donna London's Weekly. And I saw on the cover of that in, I think it was 1961, a photograph of a South African woman called Noni Jabavu. And she she was being reviewed. She 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 actually was a literary editor for um, a British magazine called Strand, I think. Anyway, she was in the British publishing literary scene, and and that was inspirational for me. So Noni Jabavu was my moment of seeing somebody who looked like me on the cover of a British literary magazine, and thinking, "Wow, that mm. means something." Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. The the the. The notion of representation matters, you know, so much, and seeing yourself, you know, reflected back in in social uh, circles, in covers of magazines, on television, you know, all of this is so important. And I kind of just have to comment that I love uh, the love in the room between the two of you and this friendship and this uh, comradeship and solidarity. Um, and the thing I think about publishing is that so much happens. So many people do so many things behind the scenes that it's very hard uh, to gauge what efforts have gone into a book, you know, because you get this book as a product, uh, you get it in ads and, you know, book reviews and so on. But there's all these mechanics um, in, in the background. And I guess this is, you know, this is what I wanted to talk about today is sort of um, what are the explicit race and gender challenges um, in this profession, because not only are you both uh, Black, African, uh, but also women um, in a very male-dominated industry, a very kind of gentlemanly profession, I would say. Uh, And what do you think have been some of the barriers for Black, Asian, international writers to get their works published? I mean, we can come back and talk about what's changed, but I guess I'm trying to get a sense of the history of, of this. Well, I suppose one has to accept that whatever happens in publishing mirrors what happens in society. Right. Mm-hmm. So there are barriers that have uh, affected women and African women, black women, brown women, that are reflected in what's been going on in the wider society, not just in the publishing industry. And as you said, publishing was traditionally considered an occupation for gentlemen. It was actually it was Frederick Warburg, who was the founder of a company called Sekhrin Warburg, who, who actually used that phrase, I think, first. So it was not necessarily 
a normal thing for either Ella or me or anybody who looked like us to, to try and make a profession out of publishing. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, we, we were part of something that is an ongoing challenge, trying to make publishing represent the real world. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, what Margaret is saying about an ongoing challenge is really crucial because I think sometimes people look at our moments in time where more and more black writers across genres are getting published and think, well, we've achieved something yet. We are so far away from where we need to be. And one yeah. of the things that since politics have taught us is that rights that are gained can be lost again if we're not really mm -hmm. vigilant. And, and I mean that quite seriously. I, I think what the barriers are, you know, they are deeply structural, but to my mind at the end of it, it comes down to a lack of imagination. Because if you can't, you know, the whole reason one, one reads is, you know, you, you'd read to, to educate yourself, to be entertained, to escape for a whole variety of reasons. But the mm -hmm. whole, very act of, of reading is about imagining yourself into a different place. These are marks on a piece of paper. But, you know, mm -hmm. but being able to decode them means that you can imagine yourself into a different world or into a different personhood. And it's it's ironic that the people who produce that work have such trouble imagining other people also producing that work. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that we, you know, you were asking about the different people who make a book. I, commissioning editors, as Margaret and I are often the ones who are the face of, you know, of publishing. But mm -hmm. I think right now, if you were to ask me, where should we be focusing in terms of um, making change? I would say within the sales and publicity departments in marketing, because if you have senior level black people who are actually controlling budgets in those places, then that can make all of the difference. I can buy a book by a brilliant back writer, but if I don't have backup from those departments, that book is not gonna do as well as it should. Wow. That continues to be an ongoing battle. Huh. But what, I mean, if someone in your position with your reputation, either of your uh, positions are saying, this is the book. Well, I mean, why would there be resistance to backing up such a book? You know what I mean? Like if well, you thought this author. Yeah. Sorry, Margaret, please go ahead. No, what, what I'm saying is that there are so many things that need to change, not only within an individual publishing company. I mean, you, you have to think in terms of the books, the books pages on newspapers. You have to think about the mm -hmm. salespeople selling books into shops. And I, I certainly know from the era when I was first publishing, some of the challenges were to do with the fact that the salespeople, if, if they couldn't pronounce the name of an author, thought wow. it must be a difficult book, whether you're talking about Bucci Machetta or whoever. So you, you have to start from a, a quite a low, what's the expression? You know, it's, it's not a low bar. And there are so many different challenges. Why, I, I, and it's all quite recent that changes been, began to happen. I'll tell you a story, which I, I've, I've mentioned this several times. I mean, the anthology New Daughters of Africa, which came out in 2019 and included Ella and, and 200 other wonderful women of African descent. And there were a lot of um, festivals and other events around Britain that, are, that Myriad, who was a small independent publisher and who worked very hard to do this, they arranged. And at one of these, I, I was on a panel with some other um, women from the anthology 
And well, there are two things. There, there are several things I took out of that those those events in 2019. One was being on the panel with a contributor who said this was the first time she'd ever worked with a black editor because I'd wow. edited her piece for that book. Another time was another contributor who'd said, well, she'd done a book and there was a national newspaper who had been going to do some feature on her. And then she was told they'd already had something on a black Muslim woman the week before. So they had to postpone mm. that. And then there was another occasion where after the panel event we were doing, I was speaking to members of the audience who said they'd had a talk from another publisher, a mainstream publisher, who'd been discussing mainstream books. No, it, it, sorry, I'll put it right. This was a mainstream publisher who was discussing normal books and diverse books. What? Wow. Exactly. Even, even the horror, <laughs> poverty of that vocab, Margaret. You think you're a publisher exactly. and you're thinking mainstream and you're using diverse wrong anyway. And, you know, this is the language we hear all of the time. Go ahead, go ahead. I'm no, sure I was, I'm gonna I was going to say... <laughs> I could absolutely add to those stories. In fact, one of the things I want to say is that I, I do work for, I think I'm the happiest I've ever been in my publishing life working for Canongate mm -hmm. because it's a good team of people. But at the same time, you know, what Margaret is saying about if this hasn't been done before, one of the first things that a sales team looks at when they're publishing is how have these books sold in the past? And you often with black writers who've been writing for a while, you'll look and you'll think, well, those sales don't reflect the critical acclaim this book has gotten, but those sales are what an advance is gonna be based on, what a marketing budget is gonna be based on. The layer that we need to grow is an understanding that it's not a level playing field. You can't just put the two, two writers, my black writer and my white writer, because I publish across the board, and give them the same starting line because my black writer is starting from back there anyway because of our perceptions. And so mm -hmm. extra effort is always needed. And that's, mm -hmm. it's really important. It's not extra effort because their talent is any less, it's extra effort because from the beginning of this industry, they were excluded. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Exactly. And it's always the chicken and egg thing. Like what comes first, the marketing or the, or the, or the product or the book and so on. And I think, Sometimes, I mean, you know, we exist in a universe where we are constantly buying things we don't perceive that we need, right? So marketing has succeeded at the end of the day in making us, uh, you know, get things that uh, we were not used to or make ourselves familiar with the unfamiliar. Um, you know, the other thing that uh, you both are saying is this notion of a finite space of publishing. You know, uh, many years ago, I was uh, I was pitching a translation of uh, uh, a fiction on um, Rwanda uh, by a Senegalese author, and at that time, Philip Gorovich had published his sort of reportage book on uh, Rwanda that had sold a, a zillion copies, and the publisher said, "Oh, we already did the book on Rwanda." It's already, it's, it's been done. Oh, you know, or as Margaret said, oh, yes, you know, there was a Muslim woman on the cover last week. How can we have another um, diverse person? So it's this kind of notion of a finite space all the time uh, that, you know, there's just this little box and you have to just kind of slot yourself into it. Um, do you feel some of this is changing? Is there... Both of you have a sense of a longer arc of how publishing has evolved in the UK 
Do you recall moments that were optimistic, sort of pivotal shifts to opening up conversations, you know, publishing exciting new Black Asian writers? Well, to me, it's, it's early days. I, I know I've been in this industry for, industry for decades, but what, <laughs> what I hope is not going to happen is that the changes that we're seeing and the optimism that we, we can feel in a way in the last couple of years, presumably post George Floyd, right, and post the Black Lives Matter profile being raised, is not something that's just going to evaporate, if you like, or, or mm. be replaced by something else more topical or more, more, you know, more, more commercial or something in in a couple of years' time. I mean, we, we as I say, we're only two or three years away from that comment about normal books and diverse books. Right. So let's revisit it in you know, five years' time, ten years' time, and see what's going to happen. And the other thing, talking about changes, in the, the, there are so many reviews that have been done, so many surveys that have been done over the decades about the publishing industry, about how diverse or otherwise it is, how it's improving. You know, there was one in... I remember in about 2004, called In Full Color, um, mm. about diversity in book publishing. There was one 10 years later um, about equality and diversity. I think there was one a couple of years ago. So there are always these, we don't need any more surveys. We know the situation. And, and to me, what is crucial is that the industry is more representative of how Oh, literature should be. I mean, as I, I interviewed Toni Morrison in, in the late 80s at a time when she wasn't yet really as big a deal as she became. She hadn't won any major prizes. And in fact, the reason I interviewed her was because we'd both been due to appear on a television program talking mm -hmm. about publishing because she, she was a crucial editor in, in her, her time. And, and she had to also juggle that thing of making sure that every black writer she published did well, otherwise the, the narrative would be black writers don't sell. But we, she, she'd been dropped from this program because she wasn't well enough known, mm. unbelievably at that time. So together with a, a young filmmaker, Sindamani Bridgewell, we decided to make our own in film. So I interviewed Tony in the, an hour she had free. And one of the things she said, we were talking again about publishing and representation and so on. She said, it's not patronage, it's not affirmative action we're talking about. We're talking about the life of a country's literature. Amen. So it's not a, yes. Exactly. It's not doing us a favor to employ yeah. people who look like you, me, or anybody else who's not a sort of mm -hmm. straight white male. Yeah. It's it's just enriching literature for everyone. So I, I think that is the key to it. And, and, and the other thing I, I, I hope we'll get over is that us and them, so that the publishing industry is them, and the black writers are us. Mm. Yeah, we can be us and them, as Tony was, as Ella is. You know, we can be on both sides, and we have to be our own center. I don't want to be always talk, be talked about as a, a being in the margins, or you know, why mm -hmm. are we, I am the center of my world. You're the center of your world. Absolutely. I, you know, amen, Margaret. Everything that you say, everything you said, I. <laughs> I will do acrobatics to avoid using the word diversity because mm. to my mind, yeah. 
it's meaningless. It's, it's just, you know, we have yeah. to use it because you know, it's a good word. But, you know, one of the things that I firmly believe and kind of say over and over again is that you can't claim to be excellent if you're only giving voice to one part of your culture. You know, the yeah. story of our culture is incomplete if we're not, for example, reading novels by young black men in urban or rural settings or whatever. How do you know who you are if you're leaving out a chunk of your population? Not because they can't write or they don't want to write, they don't have the skills or the or the stories to tell. All of that is there already. It's our own world. And things have improved a little bit in the last three years, but I mm-hmm. think a lot of it is in bad faith. And I want to be more optimistic and um yeah. pray that I'm really wrong. One of my authors, a, a young black man, um, at his book launch was being interviewed about this movement where we're seeing a greater volume of black writers. And he said what had shocked him was that out of all of his friends who are also getting published, some with massive publishing deals post George Floyd, which is great because let people earn their money. But mm. he said that when he said that he had come to my house and we had read his book through as part of our final edit, his friends couldn't believe it because they'd never met their editor. Yeah. And I sat in the audience and wanted to cry because I thought mm-hmm. you will buy these books for six figures and they maybe do well or maybe they don't. But when the next book comes along, the same author is not gonna get a six figure advance. And the story then becomes that these books don't sell. Well. I don't know, Margaret, but, you know, you we know that very few debuts will earn out that six-figure advance. So that's bad mm-hmm. faith because you're not thinking about a writer's career. It's like making noise because this is what the noise that we're making right now. But it's, yeah. there's no care involved in it. And it means that in five years' time, we'll have a whole bunch of debut writers who now in acquisitions meetings, it's like, well, that book didn't work. Huh. So well, I think also what's happening, can I say what's happening now is a lot of the times it's about make, the publishers who want to make themselves look good. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that they want to make a song and dance about here I am, I am taking on a diverse, bloody, bloody black writer. Whereas there are publishers who've always done the right sure. thing without mm-hmm. making a song and dance about it. Canongate, one world, they, they publish good writers mm-hmm. and they don't have to stand up and say, look at us, we're publishing this writer who happens to be black. Yeah. They don't have to do that because they're just publishing good writers and they know that some of them happen to be, you know. Mm. I, and, I can't use that word either, diverse, but you know what <laughs> I mean. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, also just in general, how horrible that what happened to George Floyd that beamed across the internet and and the whole world and this is what is your impetus like how bad do things have to get for one to kind of grasp even a very defanged or a diluted version of diversity it's really you know it is it's it's kind of depressing uh, and uh, that's an interesting point about sustaining a writer's career rather than kind of rewarding with this kind of gi- one big advance and then that's it, that's the end, you know, like creating a literary boom that won't, you know, live out through the years. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know that much about the about the, about the the UK. I've, I've been based in the US for uh, the last many, many years. And I know that publishing industries um, in different 
places, countries valorize certain types of writing, you know, that this is the kind of writing that will sell. So in the US, I think the thing that uh, is everybody's favorite is what they call upmarket uh, fiction, which are always novels. And they are really kind of uh, linear gripping storytelling. And they don't, they, they do deal with heavy political themes, but they don't bog down the reader. Um, and, you know, I, there's, you know, there's lots of like Celeste Nagy's um, Little Fires Everywhere that became the TV show as an example of this. Easier reading, uh, but not uh, not light. Um, and they turn into book club reads, they become into TV series, films and so on. And I just wanted to know, and I suspect I know the answer, but I wanted you to tell me, what type of book does UK publishing uphold? My answer was, historical novels <laughs> like I, I don't know like to do with royalty or like historical romances or something but I could be very wrong I think well, I can't really answer that over to you Ella <laughs> It's one aspect of the market, and I love historical novels, and I think that yeah. there are more and more African authors writing in that, although I think sometimes it's genre-defined because it's not necessarily a historical novel that's being written, but one, you know, we we live with our ancestors all of the time, but, you know, and mm -hmm. so a historical novel for an African is kind of different to a historical novel for, I guess, an English person who doesn't have that daily constant um, sense of our ancestors being here with us and in communication with us. So mm -hmm. Jennifer Malcombe's Chintu, for example, is a brilliant, um, or her first woman example of of what it looks like in the hands of an African. And and mm -hmm. so they there are those. I I I don't know that necessarily that I would say that there was one book that British publishing was looking for. Um, yeah. I I I the way that I publish and I work, being lucky enough to be in a fairly senior position is that I purposely don't do those books, is that I don't want to do a book that mm. I think one of my colleagues in the publishing house could do really well, which are the, the book club books and the ones that are maybe eas easier commercial literary fiction. There are lots of wonderful editors who work alongside who can do those. The books that mm. I'm interested in are the ones that I feel like, is there some value that I can bring to this? And I'll tell you what is not there right now that I'm looking out for. Um, I want to see a boom in the writing about the lives of older black men mm -hmm. in England. I want to know what they yeah. feel like when they're in love. I want to know what they feel like when they lose their jobs or, you know, when, when their mojo has gone, all of those things. But those are the books that I'm finding most difficult to, to publish or to find yeah. agents for. Um, and it's really important for, for, publishers of color, maybe for all publishers to think which bits of our story are we just not seeing on the shelves. And it's, you know, I, I think that it's wonderful that, some, that you know, um, a writer like Sally Rooney will capture everyone's imagination and everyone wants to read about the lives of young people in a particular part of the UK. That's great. Yeah. But it should point out to us that we shouldn't just be reacting to what's coming to us from agents or whatever. Really, yeah. we should be out there thinking which bits of our culture are we not are we not giving voice to or um, facilitating their voices rather? And for me at this moment in time, that's one one group of people who I am longing to hear from. And I think yeah. that, you know, if we want to actually make change that's systemic and lasting, it has to be about not just responding to a market, but mm -hmm. thinking about 
you know, how do you how do you create something that that readers are going to want as well? Yeah, the Sally Rooney. It's just about the young people in heat having sex, lots of sex. <laughs> that's what's what, great. Which is awesome. I know the role of where where writers will say, you know. Yes, I live in Kampala, and what I want to do is write about flowers. And I, yeah. I want to be in in a position where that writer who wants to write about flowers can write about flowers and have the same mm -hmm. heft behind her or behind him that yeah. a white writer would have. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, Margaret. What do you think? No, I, I think Ella summed it up very well. And I, I have to say, I'm no longer an active publisher in the same way as Ella is because mm -hmm. I'm just a retired old lady, except they won't let me return. But, um, <laughs> Not allowed. <laughs> but it, it, it is crucial that writers are allowed to write what they want to write, mm -hmm. as well as are able to engage with editors such as Ella is, who, who understand and, and will work with them to, to help them deliver that. In fact, I, I'm just going back to the first novel I ever published, which was been turned down by publishers on both sides of the Atlantic. It was a novel by an African-American man called Sam Greeney, and it was called The Spook Who Sat by the Door. Mm. And that was a novel that no one wanted, but it went on. We published it. It was our first novel. I, I edited it with Sam, and we sold extracts to, to, to the Observer magazine and we sold translation rights around the world it was actually filmed but it was a diversity story it was about the fact that the CIA had been accused of not having a diverse workforce so they trained and employed a black man who became this puku sat by the door so everybody could see they had a black employee and he meanwhile was organizing freedom fighters in Chicago so that was in 1969 mm -hmm. and that that whole issue of publishers saying, look, we've got a black writer, look at us, is a bit like you know, the spooker sat by the door. It what happens next is, is key and whether mm -hmm. they work well with the, with the editors. I would love, if I were a writer, I would love Ella to be my editor because, you know, I, I can see, you know, just as a, you know, it would have been lovely to have Toni Morrison if I write as my editor because mm -hmm. these are people who, who are not going to try and make you write what you don't want to write. It's not mm -hmm. going to be a, writer, a publisher or an editor who says, well, you're going to write an African story, so it's got to have, you know, it's got to be social realism, it's got to have palm trees and villages in mm -hmm. it and things like that. You know, if you're writing science fiction, you can't be an African writer, for example. Or, mm -hmm. you know, well, we know what Binyavanga Wainaina wrote about how to write about Africa. So you want editors who allow the writer to express <coughs> themselves, to use their imagination to write about what they want to write, about who they are, and to work sympathetically with those writers. So, mm -hmm. yeah, amen to what you said, Ella. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know, I, I, you know, I sense some ambivalence, like, are we in an optimistic moment? Are, are things still the same? And I just wanted to kind of point out to all this kind of, you know, lots more awards, lots more festivals at least it feels that way to me from even 10 years ago there's just like a whole you know there's a whole spectrum of uh, awards and uh, and literary festivals that you know create a lot more exposure um uh, for you know for writers so you know what what do you think what contributions do these uh, things make do you feel there's some kind of shift or is it uh 
is it uh, is it um, what can I say? Is it hollow? You know what I mean? Won't it? It won't last. It's or? not. It's not hollow. Yeah, it's not hollow because there are too many okay. people doing really excellent work for right. it to be hollow. But mm. I'm not celebrating. I'm vigilant because oh. I don't believe that it's going to last if we're not vigilant. And there's, you know, at some point one does want to relax. I mean, there are so many days where I think I'm just going to become a personal shopper. Margaret knows I love to shop. I'm a great stylist, <laughs> I think. I'd love to do that. You know, some, days does, yes, some days it becomes really too much. So I think that there are moments where we have to celebrate, where we can celebrate. And certainly as chair of the Kane Prize, I've seen how through through the decades the Kane Prize has actually made a difference. But our challenge in wearing that particular gele on my head is that the challenge there is that we have to remain relevant and to make sure that we're actually not not just doing the same thing that was done from the very beginning as a prize for African writing that's based in in England. You know, there are all kinds of complications to that. But um, at the same time, they you know they. Um, I, I'm a former judge of the, the Booker Prize and have been going to those Booker Prize dinners for for decades. And it's wonderful to me to see the complexion of the room changing. So it's not just me and Margaret in that vast room, but I think a whole range of other people. I don't for a minute trust it, though, because the change that's happening, a lot of it... Um, while it may may be well intended, while there are great people doing work, at the base, none but ourselves. If we're not doing it, I don't know if we can necessarily trust that 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 change will be there forever. We have to be completely vigilant. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. optimism mm -hmm. tinged with fight. <laughs> Cautious optimism. That's the that's the phrase, right? Yeah. I, I think I, I'm slightly optimistic because. Also, there's a younger generation who are challenging the conventions in a way. And, and so you see different things in terms of I don't know, online platforms as well as um, publications. And so, you know, I, I am equally cautious and vigilant, mm -hmm. but hopeful. Right. Okay, that's good. <laughs> uh, I want to come back to the personal at the like as we near the end of our time. Um, you know, two questions for both of you. Um, what is the one obstacle, persistent obstacle in the publishing world that you would magically wish away? Any? Uh, you're just given one. One one swish wow. of the. Hmm. I don't have no answer yet. Have you got one, Ellen? Well, one of the barriers, and we've seen some change towards this, is money, which is always, mm. you know, which is the case, and that in itself is kind of, you know, a structural issue. But um, for for many black and working class people of color who are going into publishing. Um, it's the last thing your parents would want because the the pay at least when you start off is so bad. And I think mm -hmm. now that most of us have gotten rid of unpaid internships, that's made a big difference. And I think we're more aware of it. But then it also, you know, cascades into things like authors being asked to come to festivals and there's there's no pay because it's for publicity. For wow. people of color, then I would also include, you know, working class people in this as well across the board. 
all of those social things that are part of our publishing industry, part of the literary life, there are barriers to that that are to do with money. And we very rarely think about it. Very rarely think if we, you know, are holding this, this, this festival here and the author's going to come and they're going to be paid 150 pounds. What does that mean for somebody who doesn't have the backup of generational wealth? That's not enough money. And so it's impossible to magic that away but for me, what I would magic away is our willful ignorance or our willful oh, disregard. That's very, very about. Yeah. Wow. You, yeah. I don't know why I forgot. I mean, publishing pays horribly. Mm. <laughs> so, yes, you're right. That would be an, a huge imperative from entry level jobs, you know, to start to think more about that. Uh, I like that answer. Mm -hmm. Margaret, you have to find one. Well, um, I will ditto that one. <laughs> and, uh, wow, one obstacle. Well, I'm racking my brains. It would probably take me, I should have been thinking about this for days, but nothing, <laughs> nothing sprung into my mind. Okay. Um, I think I would wish away that us and them yes. mindset. So mm. that the the writers who are not <laughs> normal in publishing terms are not, you know, on the other side of the barrier. So that we're all in it together. We're all trying to make literature richer. And mm -hmm. write, writers of colour can be publishers of colour and, and vice versa. So it's not a question of yeah. black writers begging for something from the publishing industry. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this notion of the margins and peripheries and so on, uh, like, you know, you are your own mainstream. I think uh, Tony mm. Morrison has a very cool phrase that you evoked before, Margaret. I'm going to have to find it. Um, okay. And then my final question to both of you, a professional moment, an exciting moment that you were instrumental in making happen in this world, publishing book world, and that gives you the warm and fuzzies, the uh, fuzzy proud feeling. <laughs> oh, there are, there are many. Um, what, one that keeps giving is the fact that, uh, well, I, I, as you know, I edited, I compiled an anthology called Daughters of Africa in 1992. Mm -hmm. And after that went out of print and it was not uh, possible to reprint it. Uh, together with Candida Lacey, who was the commissioning editor when that came out, and became the commissioning editor of New Doors of Africa when she was at Myriad, there was a, a platform given to another 200 women of African descent, including Ella. And they all very generously waived their fees. And because of that, it was possible to create a a sort of scholarship which whereby a, a woman student from Africa got a free course of study at the School of Oriental and African Studies, London University. Mm -hmm. And the first winner of that, Isa Lehumio, went on to become winner of the Kane Prize last year. So I think that whole trajectory mm -hmm. from the people who were inspired by Daughters of Africa in 1992 to the publication in 2019 of New Doors of Africa with all these wonderful women who waived their fees to enable this award and to see the baton being passed. 
that that just tells me that's what it's about for me. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. That's lovely. I love that one. Um, it's nice when you see the way that things connect together. I think that those moments allow you to feel like your professional life has had meaning because sometimes it can be really hard. I'm not going to name a single one, but what I do love is those meetings behind closed doors where I may still be the only black woman in the room, but decisions are being made. I love sitting where decisions are being made and influencing those decisions. I don't actually care if anybody ever knows that I was sitting in the room, but it's really important to me. And it's something that I, um, mm. I take that responsibility really seriously. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, there, there are so many people who do work behind the scenes in that way mm. and don't necessarily, um, yell about it or whatever else but i think that you know those moments are really important to me where i can say you should be looking at that person when nobody else around the room would have done that that's yeah. when i feel that, that, like um yeah that's brilliant and, and that that sort of echoes one of the things i live by which is it's amazing what you accomplish when you don't care who takes the credit right exactly <laughs> No. Amen. <laughs> I've I've been around I've been around writers and uh, Ella has like the most gangster reputation. Like, oh, I'm having this and that. Uh, I'm going to ask Ella. I'm going to ask Ella. I've emailed Ella, and and these are all the people who are you know famous and are at literary festivals. I love that. Um, but thank you so much. This was so exciting and it's a wonderful conversation. And, uh, you know, I just want to say very inspiring. Keep uh, keep doing the work you do because I think you're, you're changing it one book at a time. <laughs> so I hope we can stay optimistic. And you keep on doing what you're doing, Patti. Thank you, Margaret. 